I felt an immediate connection to Sanja. I wanted to play this role. I felt like I had to play this role. That is very rare feeling nowadays. But they said, didn't say yes. So I said, okay, they, they probably don't want me to play this role. So I went on to a Korean project. Then later on, I should play this role. So I took out all the um, script out to my garbage, and then I brought the script back. Then they messed up my whole schedule. That's why I first didn't like Sue very much. <laughs> now, after I've seen her work, I really appreciate and grateful for her work. And she did a wonderful job. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Awardist, where we are breaking down the state of the 2022 Emmys race and chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year. I am Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall. Thanks for joining us. We have made it to the end of Emmy nomination voting, and the results of that voting will be announced July 12th. If you have procrastinated, which is totally fine, I do it all the time, uh, and if you're listening to this on Monday and you haven't voted yet, well, maybe today's interviews will uh, help you reconsider some of what you were previously thinking. Up first today, we have our interview with Pachinko showrunner Sue Hugh and stars Yoon Jung and Lee Min Ho. Uh, this show is one that a lot of people have been catching up on, and they are kind of rising in the uh, you know in the odds uh, and and you know with um, pundits and prognosticators, all that good stuff. Uh, and then later in the show, from Only Murders in the Building. Selena Gomez. Uh, she's so much fun. Can't wait for you guys to hear that interview. But before we get to all that, please join me in welcoming back to the podcast, EW Senior TV Editor, Sam Highfill. Hey, Sam. Man, I don't like following Selena Gomez. That's uh, well, <laughs> that feels like a real step look, down, but here I no, am. No, no. This part's <laughs> going to be just as fun as talking to Selena. Have you worked with... Tell, tell me your stories about working with Martin Short and Steve Martin. Oh man, do I? I have too many to pick from. It's too hard. <laughs> yeah, too, I, I so many I can't remember one. I totally yeah. get that. That show, obviously, so much fun. And uh, we're going to talk about some categories today, Sam and I, that uh, are also a lot of fun. You know, I, they're actually some of the uh, most watched TV shows um, in any given year when they're on. I'm talking about reality competition. And you folks know the big ones, Survivor, The Amazing Race, RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, there's also The Challenge, which um, a, a lot of people started watching during the pandemic. People were binging. Were you one of those, Sam? Oh, no, I am an OG challenger. OG I have been watching it for 20 years. Um, yeah. But I, I'm obsessed. It's my favorite reality show. And so I'm I'm very happy that it's gotten, although it's gone a little spinoff crazy now and it's a uh, popularity. But yes, yeah. I loved because my brother was actually one of those who got into it in the pandemic. And so uh, uh, now it's a major it's like a sport for he calls me when it's yeah. on he calls me every week after the episode it's great yeah See, I, reality shows are like that they form a kind of community that um i mean other shows do obviously there are fandoms around other shows but reality sure. shows there is something different about the way they kind of rally people together um to talk about them uh i'll rattle off some of the others here too that are up this year uh top chef had a fantastic season there's also uh the voice american idol american song contest american ninja warrior the mask singer nailed it dancing with the stars hell's kitchen legendary baking it making it lizzo's watch out for the big girls uh and obviously there are more but um i mean sam I, we obviously know you're a big fan of the challenge but what for you I, RuPaul's Drag Race, of course, is, is always a standout. They're not going to have any problems getting a nomination. Are there others that you would love to see get in here this year? Well, it's so funny just to hear you break down the actual, because it's like, it feels like we love singing shows. We yeah. love cooking shows. And then like, mm -hmm. just like general competition. Um, I will say that I am, I still watch The Voice. Like when mm -hmm. it, if we're talking about Idol versus the voice, I prefer the voice. And I mean, specifically the blinds. I just think, yeah. you know, even though that That's was my favorite part of the show. Yeah. It's like that was obviously something that was conceived many years ago. We've watched it a million times, but it's still just such a great idea. And it, yeah. well, it fully comes down to the chemistry of the coaches. And obviously mm -hmm. Kelly Clarkson is um, the greatest, but I, 
I'm still, <laughs> after all these years, I'm still team voice. What can, what can I say? I love it. No, that's fine. You you chose your team voice because hey, it's <laughs> team Kelly and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, when you get Kelly and Blake Shelton going, it's yeah. some of the most entertaining television there is to watch. Um, uh, that, does that mean then you're upset she won't be on the next season? We do get Gwen back and then we get Camila Cabello. I mean, no offense to Gwen, but saying we do get Gwen back, there's no compa- Like, Gwen is very sweet, but like, yeah. she's no, what Kelly brings yeah. to that show. Um, I'm, you know, I'm interested to see how it, how it pans out, but I am very, very bummed because it's, it's one of the, like you said, it's kind of like if you have Kelly and Blake, it doesn't really matter who else is there. Um, even though I've really enjoyed a bunch of the different variations, but, um, yeah, I'm pretty, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical, but I hope I'm proven wrong. Yeah, I, I am right there with you. Um, another, you know, standout here, The Masked Singer, that show mm. is just, it's so wild. And they do something so unique, of course, with all of the, you know, the clues and the costumes and trying to keep everything a secret. And then bringing on people who, uh, people are like, I'm never watching your show again when Rudy Giuliani was revealed. It's, they make interesting choices there. It's almost like their version of, you know, uh, like Dancing with the Stars, um, will have celebrity contestants who maybe have gone through a little bit of a rough patch or something in their life career. And it's almost um, seen as a way to like rehabilitate their image. I don't think anyone behind the scenes would use those words, but you know, yeah. that is kind of the general consensus and thought about why someone like a Sean Spicer might be on there because they want to give people a chance to see like a different side of a guy who was, you know, president Trump's press secretary. Yeah. I think that's, I have to give that show props because I actually actively have to avoid it because if it, if it ever is like on and I catch a little bit, I get sucked in. I get yep. sucked into the clues and trying to figure out who it is. And so like, I get it. I get the appeal of like, I mean, the costumes are so freaking absurd, but Isn't it wild? trying to piece it together, like that's so smart. You're giving people like a game night in addition to everything yeah. else. Yeah, that's so true. Um, and then The Amazing Race. Oh, my gosh. If there are, oh, are yeah. any of these shows that I could be on, I mean, okay, well, let me back up. Like 15 <laughs> years ago, I would have told you, put me on The Amazing <laughs> Race right away. Uh, and I almost applied for it. Um, but I also think like, a, um, well, I was going to say nailed it. But kind of the point of nailed it is that it's people who aren't good at baking. And I actually yeah, really- Yeah, you're a great baker, baking. yeah. Um, so maybe baking it would be better. Um, and then, you know, you've got Maya Rudolph and Andy Samberg there as, as hosts. So that would be really fun. Those, those shows, they, um, I, have you watched that one, Baking It? They also have these grandmas are the judges. Yes. Which to me is just so, so funny. And they work in music because, of course, Andy and Maya are very talented singers and, and musicians. Yeah. I, I really enjoy that show, too. Yeah, that was, I put that one on once. I think once I'd gotten, you know, I'd gone through all the Great British Baking Show and yeah. I needed something else and I threw that on and it was, yeah, they do a good job. It's different enough, um, yes. but still a fun baking show. I have to say, this is probably totally not true, but in my mind, I've convinced myself that like I could win the challenge. Like I think <laughs> I could do it. So that that's mine. Look, that's not crazy to me. That's kind of the point. Is it really you? You you start playing along at home in ways that uh, obviously aren't tangible. Um, yeah. But well, though in some cases they are because people do start to cook along. Like you know, a lot of these cooking shows have you know they have cookbooks now and stuff. So it, it's not totally unreasonable. Um, I did just mention um, Andy Samberg and Maya Rudolph. They are uh, you know up for reality host this year alongside their host from their counterpart show, Making It, uh, which would be Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. Uh, you also have the host from Queer Eye, those five guys, the Fab Five. Um, it's interesting because I, I know just talking with them through the years, it's, it's, um, it's kind of a strange situation because people don't look at them as hosts because they are the experts in you know their respective fields, but they are hosting the show. They are driving um, all of the action. Then, of course, there's RuPaul, uh, reigning winner, Nicole Byer, uh, Padma Lakshmi, Tyra Banks, Jeff Probst, uh, Phil Kogan, Lizzo, Ryan Seacrest, Carson Daly, Julie Chen Moonves, several others. Who are standouts here for you? I have to say, I mean, you mentioned the Fab Five, and yeah, it, it does seem weird because they don't feel like hosts, but right. I also think that's what makes them great hosts. 
Mm-hmm. And it is a very different kind of show, but of all of the ones you have listed, like Queer Eye is the show that I, I mean, the other day I was like, when am I getting new Queer Eye? Like that's the show they where They just started I, filming. I know, I saw the Instagram, Maybe I'm very yet. excited. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's that's the only show that gets me that yeah. excited. And I think, I mean, it's entirely because of those guys, you know? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Like you obviously give props to the production and they pull it together, but like, Right. The Fab Five make that show. And so I would love, yeah, it does feel weird to call them hosts, but like, you know, I'd give them all the awards as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, just because they're not at the top of the show saying like all of their names and welcome to Queer Eye today. Here's what's happening. Yeah, it's like that doesn't make them any less of hosts. Um, and, And those five guys are very integral to all of the things that they're doing with uh, the hero of those episodes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, coming up with the, the interior design or coming up with, um, you know, the, the food that they're going to cook for whatever, um, you know, event is happening later in the episode or in the case of Karamo, like figuring out, um, you know, those things to kind of like, you know, as he's kind of playing psychologist a little bit and, you yeah. know, figuring out those things to kind of help them break through whatever it is that's holding them back. Um, they, they just, they do such a great job on there. Nicole Byer though. I, I do she love her <laughs> so much. Um, on nailed it. Um, she's also eligible for uh wipeout along with those guys. Um, mm-hmm. but she's so funny on nailed it. Um, because again, that's that's a show where you know that people aren't going to do well, but you don't want to um, make them feel bad. She has a very fine line to walk there. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting because, as we mentioned, a lot of people like really like the competition angle of these shows. Mm-hmm. Nailed it. Really, like, is it a competition? You know, like it's yeah. it's a joke. It's for fun. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think she has more of a job than a lot of the hosts of genuine competition shows. Because she's like 50% of the reason people are tuning in. It's yeah. her humor. It's what she brings to it. And so, yeah, she definitely has uh, more of a lift. And she's hilarious. She's great at it. Yeah. And and to your point there about someone who's being, you know, someone who people are tuning in for, I also put Jeff Probst in that category um, because he is synonymous with Survivor. He is a producer yeah. on the show. He probably knows it better than anybody else. Uh, And it's kind of wild to me that he has never even won this category. Uh, It's been a very long time since he's even been nominated. That's crazy. Yeah, because I think of it as like Probst wins every year and we're waiting for someone else. Like, I I think he wins in all of our hearts. Um, But yeah, that's that's bananas. It does feel like that guy just, you know, it's he's like the Leonardo DiCaprio. Leo is to the Oscars what right. Prost is. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just his time. 100%. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to talk about Variety Sketch. Uh, we're getting into some categories here that have a, a lot fewer um, shows that fit the genre. So that means there will be fewer nominees. Um, mm. I believe in the, uh, in the case of Variety Sketch this year, I do believe there will only be two nominees um, just Ooh. because of the number of eligible shows. Uh, and those shows are True Story with Ed and Randall, Pause with Sam J. Whose Line Is It Anyway? The Damn Michael Che Show is competing against himself on Saturday Night Live. Uh, <laughs> then you have The Amber Ruffin Show, ZUA, and A Black Lady Sketch Show. Uh, so we know Saturday Night Live is going to be nominated. Yeah. <laughs> What's our other pick? <laughs> you know... It feels like a little bit like I'm living 15 years ago, but I would say whose line is it anyway? Like, sorry, I still love it. I still yeah. think it's funny. Like, I don't know. I That's another show that I feel like never really got kind of the praise or the recognition yep. it deserved. Um, and when they brought it back, I remember being very skeptical and then watching it and being like, oh, no, it's, it's pretty much the same. It's just as funny as it always was. Yeah. And so... That one, and it's that like one an I could watch forever. funny because the, those those performers, those comedians are for anyone who's not watched. I mean, they are given you know these cues that they have to follow right away, and it's like on the spot improv. It's yeah. so absurd, um, and uh, you know, there, I think there are a lot of um, comedians who are probably scared of a show like that too. Yeah. Which that's what tells you, you know, how hard of a job um, these guys have, and. Um, why they're so good at it. I also think um, Z-Way has a good shot at being nominated here um, mm-hmm. because 
her, I don't even want to say it's a brand of comedy or a brand of humor. It's just, it's just her way of being, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. It's just like innately this kind of like who she is. And I, I don't know if you want to per se call it a character because I think she's trying to be pretty authentic and just who she is in real life, asking some of these questions. But it's the way Z-Way asks these questions of people that you're like, oh shit, no, <laughs> she didn't just ask that. <laughs> like, it's amazing. And I love her for it. I do, in my head, I could ask those questions, but I could physically <laughs> never ask those questions. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I get it. That's yeah. It's all about the delivery. It's all yeah. about the delivery. <laughs> yeah, she's great. And then a black lady sketch show. I mean, that are they're also doing some really great stuff on there. Yeah. Um, so so funny. Robin Thee and, and uh, all those folks. Um, I believe Issa Rae is a guest this season. Quinta Brunson. Um, just so many great so people behind the scenes. And then uh, you know, um, inside Amy Schumer. Uh, the, the whole Viacom family, they announced that her show was coming back. So we'll have that to add back into the mix uh, next year. So looking forward to that. And then Variety yeah. Talk. This is the category where I have problems because you have a couple weekly shows in here and those are such a different animal than a daily show. But yeah. to just put like the weekly shows into a category would mean there are like four contenders. So there would be one nominee. I, you know, it's like, it's really odd, but, um, you have last week tonight with John Oliver, the late show with Stephen Colbert, the daily show with Trevor Noah, the tonight show starring Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kim alive, the late, late show with James Corden, full frontal with Samantha B Conan, Desus and Marrow, uh, watch, watch what happens live with Andy Cohen. Um, Seth Meyers is of course also in the mix there. Um, do you have like a favorite, like someone that is your go-to for late night? I say, honestly, I'm probably a Fallon more than mm-hmm. anything else. Um, but I will say Trevor Noah is one of those where I feel like he's like just always everywhere because he's yeah. so smart and it's so, so incredible smart. the things um, that he writes. And so yeah. I end up watching a lot of Trevor Noah, not actually like on his show, but on the internet the next day, you know what yep. I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, those two are probably are probably my top. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Trevor also is interesting because he, you know, he he has an outsider perspective. He's not from the United States. So he, yeah. he innately has a different point of view and can ask questions that's not from a, it's not like he's playing devil's advocate. He's not like, he's not trying yeah. to create a gotcha moment. He just purely wants to have an understanding of the way this country operates and take a look at, yeah, but look at like all these other countries do it this way and it really works for them. And you guys are still like stuck in, you know, the days of the founding fathers with, uh, yeah. with some stuff. Um, I, I also think by the way, Samantha B, I love her show. Uh, and, and honestly wish she would get some more attention for that, but she's a really dynamic comic who has, such a strong point of view. Um, and it's really those field pieces when she sends like correspondence out to events yeah. or, or they get a politician to sit down and like play along with some of the absurd questions they're going to ask. I, I, I'm really just always kind of impressed by that stuff, getting people to play along. Yeah. It's not, it's not easy. They sometimes make no. it look easy and it is one of the hardest things I think out there, which is why only a few people really, really attempt it. <laughs> so true. Uh, <laughs> and I got to say, I have to give a shout out to, to um, Deesa Samara, who I think are outstanding interviewers. Yeah. Um, I, I love listening to their interviews. I have also think Stephen Colbert is right up there for me uh, in, in terms of his um, interview capabilities. But uh, this is another fun category I, that uh, I think we're going to see, you know, the, the normal contenders break in there. But Conan could be, I don't want to call him a spoiler because he's actually pretty deserving, uh, you know, for his final season. He could get in there this year um, as he probably should have been in many years past. So, sure. uh, but now he has gone on to the world of podcasting and making huge, you know, financial deals there. And, and we love getting to hear him there. Um, all right, Sam, before we go to a break, uh, I, I asked you this when you were on the podcast previously, I've been checking in with everyone. What is a, a show or who is a performer that you would love to see land a nomination next month? I recently rewatched Girls 5 of a season two with my family. <laughs> and good Lord, if oh. Renee Elise Goldsberry is not turning in one of the funniest performances on television right now. She, I mean, they're all great, but yeah. she's so, so incredible. I would love to see her get it on. 
She is incredible. Paula Pell is one of my favorite people on TV right now. And I know yeah. they're doing, uh, you know, a push for some of the original music on that show too, yeah. which I, is kind of mind blowing to me that they didn't get nominated for season one. Um, so I hope folks are paying a little bit more attention to the music on this show because it's so, um, uh, I mean, some of it very wacky and, and absurd. Um, but if you really go back and listen to some of the music from the nineties, when a lot of these, uh, you know, boy bands and, and girl groups were big, so were those lyrics. Um, but also the lyrics are also very like subversive in ways they're meta in really funny ways. It's just really smart. Uh, and yeah, I would love to sh see that show get some uh, nominations, by the way, uh, for anyone listening, if you did not see Sam's three rounds with those oh, ladies yeah. right before that show came out, uh, we released that. You have to go watch that. Um, I just reading the interview, not even watching it yet, just reading it, was <laughs> crying, laughing, sitting in a restaurant. Um, <laughs> I, I was just by myself having lunch and was sitting there by myself crying, reading this. And I know a couple people were like, is that guy all right? Um, I'm like, no, these are these are funny tears. Um, so anyway, I'm right there with you on that one. Uh, folks should go check that out. All right, coming up, uh, we have the cast uh, and creator of a show that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a lot more people are checking out. It is an adaptation of a very popular book. I'm talking about Pachinko. Don't go anywhere. You definitely want to hear this interview. The Awardist will be back right after this short break. Welcome back to The Awardist. All right, folks, we have a, a fantastic interview for you right now with a show that is one you should watch if you have not seen on Apple TV Plus, Pachinko, based on the incredibly popular book that spans many decades. Uh, right now, we have showrunner Su Hyu and stars Yunya Jung, who uh, won the Oscar for Minari, as well as Lee Minho. They are with EW writer Jessica Wang. Enjoy. Congratulations on the success of season one. You know, the reviews have been overwhelmingly positive. Why do you all think this story resonated with the viewers so much? For all of us, this story felt so familiar to us, not just as Koreans, but as humans. And I think, especially when you think about the last few years that we've come out of um, with the pandemic, there's something about this story, the honesty of it, the lack of cynicism of, you know, just, just stories of people we fall in love with that I think was really powerful. To my case, my friend's case, I'm, you know, I didn't research all of them, but I just overheard through my friend and me. I was actually, I wasn't suspicious about, you know, the, when I read the script, it was timeline. So I wasn't sure about my age. I, 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 don't, I don't know how the, the audience will adapt that timeline, but it's well, I think, um, written and it's a, Sue, Sue did a wonderful job and all the timeline, I didn't get confused, uh, my age, so that she did a wonderful job. And when I usually watch my show, and then I cannot enjoy it because uh, I was just looking at myself on the screen, that's very embarrassing. And then I always regret about why I did that. I could have done better than that or something like that. So that's why I don't enjoy it most of the time. But this one, somehow I really enjoyed other actors doing, they're really doing great job. All of them, young Sanja and little Sanja and their mother and father and then, I just fell in love and then I cried and so, oh my goodness, I became really audience. So that was my feeling about this episode and I was very happy and pleased watching. When I first came across the script, I could see that this was something that uh, totally transcends any kind of race uh, any nation or any kind of ethnicity. It's about love and how uh, a family uh, is formed through love and with love, they m move forward. And I think this is what touched a lot of people. And, you know, Pachinko spans three countries. So, of course, it makes sense for it to include and span three languages. But as an American production, were there any initial reservations from Apple 
about this language approach? None. I mean, when we took this out to buyers, we set, we pitched to seven buyers. It was the first question everyone asked, right? So what language are we watching the show in? And I made it very clear that it had to be in their native languages and not, not none of the buyers, all seven, they were totally fine with that. I would hope so. So season one covers a lot of territory, right? But there's still so much from the book that the show has yet to cover. So going into this first season, how did you decide sort of which parts of the book to include in the first batch of episodes? It was a very easy decision because I knew where I wanted the first season to end. I knew that the first season was going to end with Sunja at the market selling kimchi for the first time. So because that was going to be the finale, you just work backwards and try to figure out where it started. The one difficult thing about this show was because we cross-cut time periods between Solomon's generation and Sunja's childhood growing up, we had to figure out the entire family history. So even though in the first season we don't meet you know, the second generation, we still need to know what happened to them. Because it affects when YJ plays Sunja, she's living that past already within her bones. Um, so that was one of the challenges of it, but we knew where it was going to end. And, you know, when you're adapting existing material for television, you know, there's, of course, going to be differences, you know, changes. But with the character of Haruki, played by Hiromitsu Takedo, he's a childhood friend of Solomon's father, Uzasu, who's a closeted gay man in the novel. And there's been some analysis, you know, lamenting how the series didn't really address his LGBTQ identity. Is this something that could be explored in future episodes, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things about this show that people have to buy into, which is you're meeting different characters at different timelines and different mm-hmm. time periods. For example, I love the idea that we met Kim Hee as an older woman, right? In the book, you meet her as a young woman. And you're watching this woman die and wondering what her story is. And then it's almost like reincarnation. I love this idea of narrative reincarnation, because a few episodes later, she comes back to life, right? And I think mm-hmm. that's that's sort of the elegance of a show like this, the structure. So when we meet Haruki, we only meet him from Solomon's point of view. Solomon does not know that Haruki is a gay man. Mm-hmm. So that storyline cannot have come into play, right? When we meet Haruki and get into a story in later seasons through Mizasu's point of view, that makes total sense to bring it out then. But it would have felt completely forced to talk about that in our season. Right. So more perspectives coming in within the the next few seasons, next few episodes, something to tease. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Minho with, you know, Boys Over Flowers, Legend of the Blue Sea and The King, Eternal Monarch, and so much more, you start in a wide mix of genres. How do you go about in deciding which role is right for you? Oh, the basis of uh, how I choose my characters is not really what I can do well, but rather what I empathize with. Uh, All the characters that I have done is uh, how a person, individual, Minho Lee, could uh, get in touch with that character, empathize with that character, and feel with that character. Um, And uh, with with this character, uh, it is about how... uh, desperately he fought and how calmly in all those uh, desperation he behaved. And I think it's basically uh, just how I could empathize with uh, his feelings to be mine. Mm-hmm. And YJ, your career spans a very impressive five decades, you know, with accolades that include South Korea's Blue Dragon Awards and America's Academy Awards. So same question for you. How do you decide which role is right for you? And what was it about Pachinko that made you want to take it on as your next big project? It was very real feeling because uh, see, I've been working in this industry almost 60 years, they said. <laughs> so to <laughs> my age, roles are role, all same to me. But somehow this one is very different, the Sanja's character. Somehow, I'm not sure I read the script first or novel first, but I read both. And then um, I felt an immediate connection to Sanja, uh, her honesty and her strength to, to survive and her determination to survive. So that was very, so I was just appealed myself to Sue Hugh and I wanted to play this role. I felt like I had to play this role. 
That is very rare feeling nowadays. But they said, didn't say yes. So I said, okay, they, they probably don't want me to play this role. So I went on to a Korean project. Then later on, I should play this role. So I took out all the um, script out to my the garbage, and then I brought the script back. Then they messed up my whole schedule. That's why I first didn't like Sue very much. <laughs> now, after I seen her work, I really appreciate and grateful for her work. And she did a wonderful job. <laughs> I'm very honest about my feelings. Yeah, you are, yeah. What, what do you mean by they said no? And Sue, any comments, any follow-ups to that one? <laughs> they didn't say no or yes. They were just postponing. They're not saying so. That's why I don't like American way. Either they should say yes, or either I'm in or out. Even I, I asked her, should I? I'm, I'm in or out, and they never say anything. Well, what's her name? The, the the other girl from the the media rescue. And so, okay, then maybe they, they don't want me to play that role. So that's fine. Then, well, luckily I have still I have plenty of work to do in Korea. I'm not famous in overseas, but I'm famous in Korea. So, okay, fine. <laughs> so I felt so, very sorry, Sue, because of that, the director. I went to reading for the Korean project. And now I said I cannot do that. I have to do another role. I wanted to play that role very much. So I felt very sorry for him. And then I kept buying dinner for him still because I owe big <laughs> things <laughs> from that young director. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Um, <laughs> what we learned so much in this production is one of the big uphill challenges was trying to combine the U.S. process with the Korean process. Mm -hmm. And they're very, very different. And I think looking back for me, because Sunja, I was such, I think I cared so much about Sunja that it took a really long time for me to think about, like, how do we, how do we bring her to life? Now, YJ is a legend, right? And I, she's a mm -hmm. little bit intimidating, I'll be honest. But, you know, when I first met her, but I think what she said about, when she said to me, I am Sunja and I know Sunja, you really do believe her. You don't do a show like this. This is way too hard of a show to do unless you care about it. I'm so grateful that she didn't throw the scripts away in the end. As am I. So one breakout episode is episode seven, which explores Hansu's backstory. And Sue, you actually crafted this from the ground up as Hansu's upbringing is a complete mystery in the novel. So tell me more about the decision to flesh out this character and why you decided to, you know, connect it to the Great Kanto Earthquake. First, what a huge, huge disaster it was for Japan was such a shock. And then what really upset me was in reading the history books and the articles, there's a little footnote, you know, and the footnote says some Koreans were massacred. And you're, you're like, wait, that seems like a very big deal. And it's a footnote that feels really lost in that historical record. So then in looking back on it and you find out what happened to the Koreans who were in Japan during that time period, it was, it was really shocking. And it was something that I felt I know from a Western point of view, especially that's never been told before. But more important, when we talked about who Hansu was in the writer's room, like how does someone become that way? How does someone espouse that kind of philosophy? All of a sudden, when you think about this, you know, a person growing up in that environment, it all clicked together. Mm -hmm. Yes, you did a wonderful job, really. So, <laughs> oh, thank YJ, thank you. <laughs> You really did a really spectacular job with this one. And Minho, you speak Japanese, Korean, and English in this particular episode, which reveals a past that is just rooted in so much loss and trauma. How did you prepare for such a challenging episode? Well, um, uh, rather than uh, the language, I think my uh, main focus was on the identity. I wasn't even sure what my mother tongue was. And in order to survive, I had to use Japanese and I had to uh, keep learning Japanese just for survival itself. And I was thinking of where I am now, uh, where I am on this land, where I started, where all of me started. And it was a time of confusion, a, a confusion that I felt very deeply. And I think those were the things that I based uh, my preparations on. 
Uh, Sue and Apple, uh, they provided me with uh, coaches and teachers. So every time I had time, I would study with them. That's how I did it. We all praise Sue, you praise Sue. <laughs> <laughs> Drawing on what Sue was um, saying earlier, Minho, how much did you know about, you know, the Kanto earthquake and the very racist massacre that followed? Speaking about that history background, because we knew all Korean knows about that historical background, but at, Mino is very young. How old are you now? 30 something? Right? Uh, sorry, sorry, five. That time, they don't know. But me, 76, we all knew about it. We all knew about that. that Korean. So young generation doesn't know anything about, you know, not like details because my age, because I was born in 1947 after the um, independence from Japanese, but still I heard, overheard through my mother. My mother lived in that era. Uh, my my mother was born 1924. She was living in that era, so I've heard. And then, on our history um, history book, history class, we learned about it. But nowadays, they don't know much about it. That's the difference between young generation and my generation. They blamed all Korean, so they buried them. Actually, it was very very brutal and very very. What you call that is very tragedy for our history. So, well, it's better not to know about that situation than you know. <laughs> to give a little further explanation, I don't think my generation, uh, the young people, uh, they really know too much. They just understand it as some kind of a big earthquake that happened, a natural calamity uh, that happened to them. But they don't really know what happened to the Korean people, and uh, they really uh, don't know much about uh, what happened afterwards. Mm -hmm. YJ, you said that you learned about it, you know, you heard about it from your mother. I'm wondering if your mother had any, like, maybe personal ties to, you know, these historical events as well. Like, if she ever experienced anything or knew anybody who experienced the earthquake and just the racism that followed. Actually, she wasn't in Japan at the mm -hmm. time. She was in Korea, but mm -hmm. it was during the Second World War and uh, all the J Japanese was very strongly involved with that war. So she was mentioning a lot of times about her when she was middle schooler, I think. And then um, they only have some kind of this much amount of rice, um, what do you call the chumokbab, we call this a small patch of rice, that that's all they could have. You know, when you were growing up that age, you got to eat a lot. And even all the um, bronze, anything with the bronze or something, they have to collect all of um, all the house from the house utensil, utility or the spoon or knife or anything. They just uh, collect everything for making weapons. So they really suffered. So I've heard about a lot of things, um, more, much more than this. And then the sad thing about that earthquake is, it's, it's just a natural cause, but they blamed all Korean. So mm -hmm. actually they buried them. Um, and they blame Korean. So it was very, very sad. I, I'm still <laughs> trembling, trembling <laughs> while I'm talking because I heard uh, through my mother when she was young, she really. And then later on, we didn't talk about much because uh, my mother, um, she's a well-educated woman, but she doesn't want to talk about that time because it was very shameful for uh, them lost our country, lost language, lost letter, lost everything. And so that was very, most of people who've been through that era don't want to talk about the detail, how they suffered or how they've been treated because of Korean. That's very, okay, <laughs> let's mm -hmm. stop. <laughs> yeah. That was a very insightful answer. And I, 
I remember um, Sue, we spoke during the junket as well. We were, we were discussing sort of your decision to infuse the real life Korean woman towards the end, right? And you, I think, I remember you saying that, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were saying that you were surprised by how they were so just like willing to talk about it in that sense. The first generation Zainichi women. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they were, aren't they amazing? You know, these women are a hundred years old. They have lived through, they've lived through history, right? They, when you look at what those women have seen and what they experienced, my life will be nothing. Like what I have seen in my life is going to be nothing compared to those women. And yet the thing that I found so amazing was they thought they had small lives, right? That woman at the end, she says, thank you for listening to my boring story. And mm-hmm. it's so shocking because it's anything but boring. And what YJ was saying, like her mother's generation, they didn't talk about it because they thought it wasn't a life worth talking about. And now we're doing this huge, enormous show that Apple was paying all this money to pay for about those women in those generation, right? There's something just, it's pretty poignant, I think. Yes, mm-hmm. that's why we are very grateful to having this story. And then I re- really honored their family story with, with, with this show. I'm very happy, just and pleased and happy to share this story with the, uh, the honor their, their family story with Apple. So I'm very grateful, Apple, <laughs> for the Apple. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, nobody would understand or what happened in a small country in Asia. But, well, we had very, very severe and what you call the tragic story. When all country, I think, they do have. When another country occupied another country, then anything could happen. So my mother used to stay the animal or the tiger or lion is not scary. People are scary. That is really meaningful, that simple word. People could be scary to each other. You know what I wonder, YJ, that's sort of hopeful. Like, you know, out of this Ukraine situation, a pachinko will come out, right? Someone will write the pachinko from the Ukraine. So that I think that's what's sort of brave about the book and about Apple's decision to tell this story is the only way we're going to remember these things is if we keep them in the cultural ether, right? Yeah. And drawing from that, you know, season two is officially happening. So when do we go back into production? And, you know, what preview can you give to fans of the show? Oh, those are very hard questions. Um, (laughs) Right now we're in the writer's room and uh, we're breaking the second season. You know, we're hoping to shoot sometime next year. Yeah, and you know, in the season one finale, Hansu and a young Noah share a very tender moment while en route to school. And, you know, readers of the book will know that Noah has a particularly tragic arc. And, you know, will his story and his relationship with his brother Mozasu and, you know, his mother, Sunja, will that be explored in season two? So season two, we jump to World War II years. So it's the two boys growing up and we see them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, someone, the best of years and the worst of years, right? So we get to see that in their brotherhood. What else can you tease? Aside from Sunja and Hansu's romance, we have like one of my favorite romances in the book coming. Ooh, okay. <laughs> You're very good at your job, I'll say that. <laughs> but um, so a question for all of you, what are you all most excited to explore in the new season? Uh, if I say something, then I would be burdening Sue with what I say. Well, I'm excited about uh, the romance, the romance that will give brief uh, life into the new generation. And I'm also um, expectantly waiting about uh, how Sanja survives. YJ, do you want to take this one? Oh, no, this is Sue's job to- <laughs> To get it out, it's not my job. <laughs> Me being an actor, when I have a script, then I try to. That was like a mission. That is like a mission to me. So I'll try to portray Sanja, and then since she did wonderful job, because that uh, the, when she get old, I mean Sanja, uh, her perspective, watching them, you know, the, the time line was different and. That was very brilliant job she did. And so 
I, whatever she write, I will try to do my best for her or for the story. I'm the part of the story. That's the, my mission. So, no, she will do the great job. I'm sure this is burdening, but <laughs> so. <laughs> yes, but YJ gave me two rules. She says, you cannot write two things. These are two things I will never do. I will not dance and I will not sing. But that doesn't so, anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you dance in the opening credits, which was no, she doesn't. Oh, that's why I was really <laughs> Minho didn't either. Minho and YJ, neither of them danced. We, oh, well, I that went completely above my head. I, I was just like, oh, this is joyful. Thank you guys again for taking the time to chat with us. Congratulations on season two's super phenomenal series, and you are also wonderful in it. So, thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, first of all, I've just got to say how absolutely adorable um, Yunya Jung is. Uh, we saw it at the Oscars when she, you know, got her Oscar from Brad Pitt. She's just so wonderful. And, um, you know, I love that a movie like that really uh, exposes the rest of the world to incredible talent like her. Here's the thing I will say, you know, a lot of the conversation around this show, Sam, has been um, because, of course, we have Squid Game that is essentially mm -hmm. a lock for a best drama nomination. And the question has become, uh, is there room for two international series, which really kind of pisses me off a little bit, if I'm going to be honest, because it shouldn't be about whether there's room for how many international series, just is it a good show? Like, we aren't trying to like, oh, we're only going to give international shows one slot, maybe two. Like, that's not how it should work. Yeah, I mean, in a world of like more than 500 television shows, I don't think we need to worry about like two no. international shows. No. Also, like it's so funny to me because like, yes, I get that international just means it's made in a different country, but yeah. like, every, isn't every show essentially an international show? Like, it's like we're, we're always watching shows yeah. from all over the world. Why do right. we are, even? Are we, we aren't calling Bridgerton an international show. Exactly. You know, there's right. like, so it's just, it's good television, and so good television should be rewarded. Exactly. Good TV is good TV. That's all that matters. Speaking of good TV, one of my favorite shows from the last year, Only Murders in the Building. I'm so excited for season two, which starts this week. Coming right up, Selena Gomez. Don't go anywhere. The awardists will be right back. Welcome back to the Awardist. Okay, you guys, this interview, uh, I, I'm so happy we got because uh, I, I wasn't quite sure, but we definitely wanted to speak with her because Selena Gomez is someone who, uh, when when we first heard she was going to be co-starring in a show with Steve Martin and Martin Short, it kind of seemed like, oh, like one of these things is not like the other. But you know what? That's what makes this show so fantastic. The dynamic between those three actors, and she even uh, says uh, in the interview that she has become one of the three amigos, which which I love because those guys have really uh, welcomed her. And, you know, of course, they want their show to be great. They want her to be great. It, it you know, it just works out for the best uh, for everyone, if that's the case. Um, so uh, without further ado, here now is Selena Gomez. Only Motors in the Building season two debuts this week. Give us like a like three words to describe the season. I hate <laughs> when people do this. It's so hard. Uh, clever, exciting, or maybe I should say thrilling. Um, all right. And a surprise. Oh, all right. I like all of that. I like all of that. All right. So let's dig in here. You know, I want to go back to uh, like before you even got the show. Were you actively looking for a series to star in when this came along? How, how did it happen? I'm, I'm not sure I was looking for a series. I was just looking for something in general, whether whatever form it was going to be. I was trying to find something that I could do because music was so much of my life for years. And I felt like I could take some time for, you know, my, my true love, which is, you know, film and TV. And this was just honestly a wonderful surprise. We got the material and responded right away. And I thought it was so cool. I definitely didn't think it would do this well, but I'm really happy. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned a surprise for season two. I mean, yeah, season one was, uh, I, I think no one knew what to expect um, with the show. And it's just been so much fun to watch for so many reasons. 
Um, I, for you, like what, what's kind of the great joy for you as a performer that you're getting to do an experience here that you haven't had on any other sets or with any other characters you've played? Well, I think it it probably starts with Steve and Marty um, being able to work alongside two legends um, is quite unique because yeah. I don't know if I would have ever had an experience like this and learning from them, growing with them, creating stories with them has taught me so much as a human and as an actor. And I couldn't be more grateful. And then the writing of the show is just wonderful. So I, I don't know. I guess there's multiple things that I love about it. Yeah, yeah. Right before season one, you and Steve and, and Martin sat down with our Dan Sneerson. And um, you mentioned uh, you guys had done the Zoom meeting. You guys got to meet there. And, and you mentioned being so nervous at first, I think were your exact words. And I, I'm going to assume you met specifically like meeting them and working with them. But now looking back, do you do you recall like the, the how, the when, the why of those nerves settling? Sure. Well, it was my first project back from being on any sort of um, show in years. So I was definitely nervous for that. Being able to create this character from scratch with the writers has really been so much fun. But I would say that, I don't know, I think that I was nervous for multiple reasons. I just wanted it to be great. And then, of course, I didn't know how I was going to fit in with Steve and Marty. I mean, I was like, I hope they like me and I hope we get along. And uh, sure enough, they made me feel so welcome. And now I feel like the third amigo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. W was it just a matter of like getting on set with them to help those nerves subside? Definitely. My first scene was actually the scene where we do meet in the first episode. So um, it actually worked out really well because it was the actual feelings of meeting someone new and kind of giving them no sort of reaction was really fun. Um, so, yes, I think the first day I felt so much better. I felt like the jitters had gone away. But throughout the whole season, I was just anxious because um, you never know. You never know what's going to be good or what's going to be bad. Right, right. You know, I, I mean, of course, you did more than 100 episodes of Wizards of Waverly Place, which, by the way, I got to say, you were quite funny um, <laughs> on that show. And it, it's been interesting to watch and see people kind of even rediscover that through only murders being on. And people are like, oh, right. Like, she was so funny on that show. Oh. But, um, I, you know, I guess I'm kind of wondering, like, when you look back in terms of, you know, exercising comedy muscles, did did you ever find yourself kind of using some on murders that you kind of gained on that show? A thousand percent. I feel like Mabel is an older version of Alex <laughs> um, <laughs> in a way, but I, I adored being on that show so much. I felt like I did learn a lot. We actually had great writers. We had two writers that were on Friends and we had, you know, an incredible director that we, you know, used for most of our seasons and they were incredible. So we got really lucky. And um, and that I still look back at that and laugh at certain things just because I thought it was so fun. And we tried, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. In terms then, again, like working specifically with Steve and I, 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 it feels weird for me to call him Marty. I don't know him, but I, <laughs> with, with Steve and with Martin, um, you know, when, when you really get into the thick of those scenes and those guys, of course, um, I mean, there, there are great scripts on the show. We know that, but there's also such a, um, and maybe this is part of the writing, like an unpredictable nature about those guys. How do they keep you on your toes? Even when we're off camera, they're keeping me on my toes. They are so quick. It's unbelievably charming and it's so witty and smart. Their humor is very smart. It's not necessarily crass. It's very um, quick. and Which witty. is really hard, actually. I think so, too. You know, I think it's very hard and they... I don't want to say they were constantly on. I think it's just in their innateness that they completely just know how to bounce off each other really well. And we applied that to the show, of course. We would have these freedom takes, if you will, where mm -hmm. they would throw something at me and 
my reaction was honestly genuinely what I think my character would do because half the time I'm like, I don't really get what you're trying to do, but <laughs> it works. So yes, I've been, I've been stuck a few times, but they give me some good advice and lines to kind of throw back at them. Yeah. Is that um, feeling of, I don't really know what you're doing. Is that kind of the epitome of, um, and I know folks will have seen this in the trailer um, where uh, the the detective says, don't be, don't be a smart ass. And Steve says, it's kind of her thing. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> I think it's actually a part of what makes Mabel like, I don't know, but I will say she's rubbed off on me a little bit. I love being quick and, and um, I kind of steal Steve and Marty's jokes every now and then. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel like she's, she's, she's fun. Yeah. As you uh, got to go into season two, uh, and I'm not speaking uh, or asking this specifically to like reveal any plot points or anything, but what did what were you most interested in learning about Mabel as you got to experience her and live with her a little bit more? Um, I suppose it was probably a mixture of, you know, having her try this new journey um, by shedding some of the past from, you know, little things to cutting her hair and um, falling in love with Kara's character. And it it was really amazing to see the growth, but also her curiosity, mm. uh, I feel like is really special this season. And she, or I guess I feel more comfortable playing her and just trying to find moments where they can have serious and you know precious moments versus you know the crazy physicalness right right which i mean there's plenty of great physicalness on this show uh you mentioned how smart the comedy is but some of the physical comedy too is just yeah. like uh a masterclass. i always I mean, am shocked i'm like okay how if they can do these things crawling through vents and yeah jumping and falling i i mean i have no reason to complain <laughs> they're killing it i mean yeah it's so that season great. one finale was just i i've watched it a couple times because the physical comedy is just a master class it's so so good um, yes I think yeah. Marty might take the cake for some of it because he has a whole way of walking and communicating that happens. And it's so crazy that I, it just matches his character perfectly. Yeah, 100%. Um, I, you mentioned Cara Delvine, who's in this season. Uh, a lot of great guest stars. Anyone you specifically want to like tease and get people excited for? Well, there are some surprises that I can't reveal, but I will say working with Cara was so much fun because I had known her since I was about 15 years old. So it was really fun. But I will say having Shirley MacLaine on set was really cool for me. I um, I felt the presence of all of this history that she yeah. has um all this knowledge that she has. And I, um, I adored it. I made sure she was comfortable. If she was hot, I would get her a fan. Uh -oh. I was kind of doting on her a little bit, but she was so sweet and just really precious. Uh, I love that. She is, uh, I mean, like you said, she's a, she's a legend. Uh, yes. so what a, what a treat to work with her. I have got to talk about Saturday night live. Yeah. You were so good. I can't even Thank imagine you what that week was like, what that night was like, um, the Bratz doll sketch and the, <laughs> um, the baby monitor. Oh, oh, uh, the, um, a peek at Pico. They were so good. But what, hey. like, what for you was a standout from that week or specifically that night of the show? Probably being in Lauren's office with Lindsay Shaw and Colin and I guess maybe four other people were in the room. It was a very small room, but it was right before we were doing the first show. And we had on, um, he had this board with all of the different skits on it. And we put the order in together. And it was one of the coolest moments because I felt like I was sitting in a room where some of the greatest, you know, artists and acts have been in, in that position. So I will never forget that moment. And then I'll never forget my monologue because I thought singing Barney was such a, a classic moment. <laughs>
I mean, I, so as soon as that happened, I remember growing up, my sister is nine years younger than me. So Barney was big part of her life. So after school, that was always on. And it, like, as soon as that popped up, I was like, holy cow, you've got to be kidding me right now. Like (laughs) childhood flashbacks for me too, as a, as a fan. Um, Were there any sketches like at any point during the week that like ended up getting scrapped, but you were like, oh, I wish we could have gotten to do something with that, that it would have made it to the show. Yeah, I think they're well, first off, you don't expect how many skits they're going to give you. And so there's so many. Um, I think it would have been really fun to play like a character, like a gross guy hitting on a girl or something like that. I would have loved that. Um, Maybe next time, hopefully. But um, but yeah, my favorite one was probably Peek at Pico for sure. Yeah, so good. So good. I I would hope and think there will will certainly be a next time. I I also have to ask you about your TikTok because it... I have gone down rabbit holes of your TikToks before because you just do something. You you're rarely yourself talking in yeah. them, um, and you're just using all of the other like popular uh, audio things. But how much? <laughs> because I'm I don't make. I'm just a consumer of. So mm-hmm. how much time do you put into thinking about like, uh, what can I do with this one? Like, what's my, you know. Surprisingly, surprisingly, not that long. Um, I think the stuff I do for Rare Beauty takes a little bit more time, yeah. but all of the sounds I find, I'm not kidding. I'll just kind of memorize it really quick and just go for it. I find them so entertaining and I love yeah. finding sounds and I don't know. It, it makes me laugh and I I enjoy the lightheartedness of it all. Yeah. That's probably why I don't make them because I would overthink it way too much what to do. Yeah. And you're saying that's the key. It's just the opposite. Don't think yeah. too much about it at all. Yeah. Um, and then Selena plus chef. I mean, this show, I mean, first of all, I love food, any food shows. And I just love what you're doing there because it's so different. Um, what, what are you kind of, um, what, what is that show fulfilling for you as a, as a creative that, you know, a traditional, you know, performance uh, scripted series isn't giving you? Well, I think learning how to do something, I I love learning. So learning how to tackle something that I love, which I love food as well. Mm. Um, it happened as a surprise, really, during quarantine. We came up with the idea of doing a cooking show at home virtually, and it worked out really well. But it was also just a release for me. I think cooking is therapeutic and really fun. And I'm genuinely kind of a mess when it comes to being in the kitchen. So it's really fun. I end up enjoying it. And now the, you know, I reap the benefits of actually learning from some of the best chefs in the world and I enjoy it so much. And I, it's just so fun, you know? Yeah. I, some of, some of the chefs you've had on, I'm just in awe to, you know, sometimes during uh pandemic as well, we had these like virtual cooking classes with people to, you know, promote different shows and stuff. And it's just so wild to be like cooking along with Wolfgang Puck in my kitchen <laughs> right here. Yeah. It's just wild. So, um, yeah. yeah, well, my fellow cancer, your, your birthday is coming up a month from now. So happy right. early birthday to you. Thank hey. you, uh, for, for your time and, and, uh, being on the awardist podcast and congrats on everything. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Of course. Of course. Uh, I I got to say, I, I love her so much. Um, I know she has an enormous fan base around the world. Uh, I think at one time she was the most followed person on social media. She might still be. If not, she is still way up there. Um, and, and in those regards, I think that probably certainly has helped uh, bring a lot of exposure to the show, brought a lot of eyes to it. Sam, h- how do you feel about Only Murders? I love it. I will admit I was late to it, um, mostly because I was a little skeptical of mm. Selena Gomez, you know, as an actor. I hadn't ever watched her early work. I only really knew her as a singer. And mm-hmm. so I was one of those where, like, people said it was great. And I was like, I'll get around to it whenever. And then, of course, I got around to it. And uh, she proved me wrong. And I was instantly obsessed. Yeah, that show too. It's just so easy to watch. You get into it, and then you're like, "Well, I got to keep going now because there's a there's a murder mystery involved." Yeah, um, so, you know, there's a really compelling reason um, to keep going, and and uh, you know, it's it's not like any other show that is on TV. Those guys are doing stuff that, um, in in some ways, is so classic Steve Martin and Martin Short, but also not like, you know, these are very original characters and, and what they're doing is just so much fun to watch. Their physical comedy is 
A plus. Um, and honestly, um, I would love to see either of them win their category. Just going to say it. No shame in that. Um, also, okay. she was so great. Uh, Selena was on SNL. Um, I think some of the more memorable sketches this year that a peek at Pico and the Bratz dolls when they like come to life. Yeah. Uh, it's so funny. Um, she, yeah, she was great on there. So I, I'm I'm so happy for her getting to see her kind of live in this moment and people kind of discover, even though she has showed off her comedy chops before, but kind of seeing this new side of her and her, as she said, getting back to um, the thing that she loves, which is, is you know, film and TV after being, uh, you know, in music for a very yeah. long time. She chose the perfect show to do it. Uh, yeah, you are not kidding. Great choice all around there. Um, and with that, folks, that is it for this episode of The Awardist. Thank you so much for joining us. If you liked what you heard, please follow, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation going with us, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. We will see you next week. Sam, thanks so much for joining me again. Absolutely. This episode of the Awardist podcast is hosted by Jared Hall, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.